Oh, a quick hello, and we're good to go. Welcome to the show, Bill Slavsky. You've been waiting four months for that, haven't you? <laughs> exactly. You were going to be on the show in December. Unfortunately, you fell ill, but you're now 100% better, or 100% better, much, much better, and mentally on top form again. It's hard to say. I, I spent most of January, no, December and January in the hospital. Right. As I was uh, relearning how to walk and do things like that. Hey, Michael. No. Uh, so so they, they decided to teach me how to use a walker and then how to walk with a cane. And mm. I'm awkward, I'm clumsy, but I walk much better unassisted without those things. Right. Because I have uh, staircases that lead up to my house from my garage and all around the house. And I can't walk around my neighborhood without going up or down the stairs. And I can't leave a walker or a cane at the bottom of the stairs mm. because people will walk away with them. Right. Yeah. And, and kind of so kind of it was more of a, it was a physical problem rather than a, 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 an intellectual or mental problem. And now you've gone bonkers writing gazillions of articles to catch up on all the stuff you missed. There's stuff I missed. There's stuff I didn't write about that I should have. I just uh, copied the information for Universal Transformers into oh. Notepad earlier today so I can <laughs> write about those. I can do uh, uh, there, there are a lot of citations for uh, things like Bert in, in this paper, in this patent. Uh, yeah. the, the patent inventors uh, used when they were writing the patent where they're talking about what a Universal Transformer is and uh, all the Things related with that, so I wanted to capture that information. I wanted a link to it so people could read it. I did one for uh, word vectors like that, where right. I talked about word vector citations. So I want a bird citations patent, so that's why I can look those up. There's some really fascinating papers in the, uh, one on uh, word vectors, including uh, time and the structure of time. That just struck me as really odd as a inspiration for word vectors but it was really interesting sort of from a philosophical point because words change their meaning over time so you have to have that kind of third dimension of time to us to 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 uh, associate or uh, account for that was the word i was looking for for the change in that meaning over time they're going to move around that vector map over time <laughs> is that right and, and it's it's uh, fascinating seeing that that type of thing it's included as an inspiration for uh, the creation of Inventions like that. Wow. Yeah. I mean, kind of just for me, like something like Google Maps, the fact that time is such an important factor as things close down, things open up, things are open during the day, closed during the day, the night, sorry. And the knowledge graph as well, because the strike rate, you mentioned it, the whatever it's called, the baseball batter rate thing <laughs> that can change from one day to the next or one minute to the next. And all of these knowledge graphs, we tend to think, oh, it's all terribly static, but it's not. It moves over time. So there's a computer scientist named James Firth who uh, is known for the saying, you should know a word by the company it keeps. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it's referring to co-occurrence of words and how words tend to appear together. And that's how something like word vectors or BERT work. They uh, tend to look at very large corpuses of words and see how often they appear together. So when you say a certain word, it infers another word. And that's Sort of the concept behind uh, uh, citations, behind uh, 
connectivity between words. Things like uh, Amazing and Spider-Man get published together. They have absolutely nothing to do with each other except they're frequently on somebody's uh, Marvel Comics list. Right. So kind of if you're analyzing Shakespeare, Amazing and Spider-Man have absolutely no association at all, which I mean, but it, it, it does actually mean something. I'm, I'm, I'm taking an extreme example. But if you analyze Shakespeare's work, you don't have much of a grip on what's going on today in those what you call context clouds. So so uh, Shakespeare was actually adopted heavily today. And there are many Shakespearean phrases that are often used these days. They, they may be used more as idioms where they don't have much meaning to people saying them other than something they've heard before. But, uh, yeah, it's it's good seeing how words are connected. And we have things like rank brain, which really has nothing to do with uh, bounce rates or pogo sticking or anything like that. Some SEO uh, people who call themselves experts say that those things are important, but that's not the machine learning that's involved. Machine learning involved is looking at the co-occurrence rates of words and saying, okay, this query isn't getting good results. If we use a bird pre-training program to see which words are associated with these words that might have been left out of the query, we can get better uh, search results for that query. So we'll use rank rank for it. And then that moves on to entities and recognizing entities both in the query and in the texts, the, the content that it's analyzing. As Paul Hare said in uh, How Google's Works uh, SMX presentation in like 2017, hmm. Google looks for entities in every query these days. They want to know what people are referring to when they're trying to find information. And knowing what that query is means they can include information in knowledge graph and search results that, that help explain people who are doing search uh, what a, a set of search results might be about. So the idea behind search results, we've been told by the search engines for years, come up with keywords that might help identify what you're searching for. So you start playing a guessing game. You're asking yourself, which keywords do I use to find this information I'm interested in? And you guess those keywords, you type them in, and you get search results. And then you look at those search results and you say, oh, I should modify that query to get this a better result because these pages tend to be about this. And I want to find out more about something else. Like you search for Lincoln, you could mean Abraham Lincoln. You could be, mean Lincoln, North Dakota. You could mean Lincoln Town Car. But, so what then is it? Yeah, and, and sorry, those query pools, I think they're called, and, and those kind of sequences of queries, it's Google playing this kind of guessing game to, to understand our mind maps, and right. it's building mind maps around our own behavior from the query pool. So you see a knowledge panel, and it tells you about that entity, and, and um, it might include things like query, query revisions, which may increase the number of clicks to the website that's about that particular version of that query which uh, may help modify it in the future, especially if the uh, search results that are near it uh, aren't getting many clicks. And those first patent I've seen, they talk about uh, using click-through rates to uh, change something around like a knowledge panel. Right. Okay. And, and, and th those click-through rates are going down. I mean, Rand Fishkin's just got another report out with Spark Tower saying it's 63%. I mean, Google are putting so much knowledge on the SERP. Oh, you have something to say there. Yeah, I was thinking about that earlier today. 
And there's at least one patent from Google that talked about teachable moments. Hold on. We're going to include examples in our search results of queries that people could perform and answers to them. And they're the related questions that people also asked. Yeah. And, and they're to show people how a search might work. If you're doing a search for a particular subject, they might say, that entity that's in that search is, are in these other uh, uh, queries that people perform, we have in query logs. Or, or they follow a query template that we've had seen those query logs too. So we'll show right. them examples of other searches other people have performed and give them some idea of what they might perform. So they may not want our answer directly, but they want to see examples of what we're doing with the uh, query terms that they used. Yeah, so and I... Sorry, I mean, I had a question about the people also ask, which are getting more and more kind of prevalent. I mean, I, I do my brand cert research, and, and they're, I mean, they're really, really appearing an awful lot. I mean, are those people also ask boxes related to the fact that Google has understood the entity within the query? So Google's cloud crowdsourcing our answers. And they're right. saying, okay, what other queries are like the ones that you asked? Okay. These are these related questions. The so they are actually physically related questions to the one I just asked, as opposed to the, the questions around the entity that Google has managed to identify from the query. Of people searching every day. Mm. We get people asking the same types of questions you are, about mm. the same types of things. And we'll show those other questions, other uh, similar entity-type questions, and... Uh, let people see other people are searching for those things. What types of answers are people getting? Right. So oh. And they're, they're teachable moments. And that they are teaching people how to use mm -hmm. the search engine, how to come up with answers, how to uh, ask good questions. Wonderful. Now, quickly, we're going we're gonna to skip to what I usually do at the beginning, but we got carried away there very quickly. Uh, your brand SERP, I actually took a screenshot earlier on. Your brand SERP's absolutely delightful and beautiful with your Twitter box at the top, SEO by the sea, it's recognized you. And the knowledge panel on the right, which I find it's A, very rich, and I'm, I'll bet my bottom dollar you haven't actually worked on it. Uh, it, it it's like that naturally in inverted commas, simply because you're so clear about who you are, what you do, and you write so much, you're so present. I've, I've had to change over time. I, I first started getting the knowledge panel because somebody created an entry for me in Freebase. Right. And and they added stuff. And, and I looked at that, and I'd been involved in some semantic type stuff. Uh, and I added a JSON LD response, uh, some schema to my webpage about me. And it resulted in some things like like them knowing where I went to college and they I went to uh, University of Delaware get a degree in English and I went to uh, Winder University School of Law and uh, got a law degree and there's a in the knowledge panel you can click on that uh, Winder University School of Law yeah. and it results in telling you that I'm one of 30 some uh, notable graduates of the law school which right. is funny because I'm not a lawyer, even though it's a law school I graduated from. Right, but it knows you went to the school. And you said you the when did you say you added the schema markup to your site? 2014. 
Right, okay, so you're way ahead of the field. Next point is, I know it's something interesting, is if we come back to that brand SERP, you can see that there isn't a little world icon with the entity home, what I'm calling the entity home, there isn't one there. Um, so I was kind of thinking, oh, okay, Google hasn't figured out Bill's entity home. Uh, that's a pity because I feel that entity homes, um, which is where you see the world icon with the link next to it, give you a certain control that Google's recognized where it should be looking to get information from the horse's mouth. But then I looked at your knowledge graph entry in the knowledge graph API, and it has recognized the official URL. It just doesn't put in the knowledge panel, and I haven't seen that before. <laughs> so you're special, Bill. And the other thing we can say on the screenshot for anybody listening on audio is I've been tracking and figuring out or trying to identify the updates to the new Google Knowledge Graph. And you see very clearly here that Bill's uh, Knowledge Graph confidence score changes systematically when there's an update to the Knowledge Graph, which means that uh, Bill is extra special, perhaps. But there you go. So we, we have uh, you in the knowledge graph, and we also have you associated with Tim Brenners-Lee. And I was wondering, are you associated with him? Do you have a relationship with him? Or is it just simply you write about him so much? It, it says that uh, he's one of the people also ask results. Yes, exactly. Knowledge panel. So is Gene Rodenberry. I don't do much with Star Trek at all. <laughs> uh, so is Steve Jobs. I don't do anything with Apple. Uh, so is uh, George Orwell. And it's been a long time since 1984. Uh, so th those people also ask can be pretty flaky. I mean, it was it was suggesting that people also ask when they search for me that it was my mother or or my my sister, which which is kind of slightly strange because nobody would search for my mother and me in the same kind of world. She's got a different name. She's in a completely different universe. Uh, and those people also ask, seem to be quite kind of like flaky. The relationships Google is seeing there are perhaps not particularly something we as humans would understand. The machine's drawing some strange conclusions. It's, again, looking at query logs to come up with those. Hmm. Well, th that was my thought, is because my mother has a different name. I, I mean, people don't know that we're related. So there would be, I can't see any circumstance where somebody would search for both of us. So I can only assume it's, it's putting her in there because she's my mother. It's possible that searchers may have come to the same conclusion. And we're <laughs> right. looking, looking for her at the same sessions, they're looking for you. Okay, so I might be underestimating how well known she and I both are. Um, right, so we're going to come to the knowledge graph. I mean, that whole thing with the knowledge graph confidence score, Google just wants to understand. Um, and it wants to find the authoritative source of information about the fact that would be what I would call the entity home, understand the information provided, and then acquire reliable corroboration of that information. Is that a fair assessment of how Google learns? So Google is looking at uh, triples in biographical information about you. Right. When it finds facts for you, so-and-so works in such-and-such such place. It's it's breaking things down. It's using pre-training language models like BERT to try to understand subject, verb, object type things, statements. And it's looking at the sources of those statements and determining whether or not they're popular or reliable or how close the subject and verb are in those sentences. And it's using that type of information to come up with those confidence scores. 
Right. Okay. It's, it's looking at consistency across multiple pages. Yeah. To those, like sort of like NAP in local search. Oh, I was going to come to that later, but let's go with it right now. Now, can you draw the parallel between the two? Because I think it's really interesting, and I think kind of the local search people are going to be incredibly pleased about this. <laughs> a, a business is known by Google as a, a local business entity. Hmm. The people who wrote about businesses in early days at Google, in Google Maps, uh, were involved in uh, the annotation framework which was a precursor to Knowledge Graph right. before, before MetaWeb was purchased and Freebase was used as a Knowledge Graph. Uh, there were people at Google, engineers, who had been assigned to uh, come up with entity information. This is similar in uh, Microsoft as it is in Google. In Microsoft, we had people working on what they referred to as an object-level ranking, where mm -hmm. they, were, they were doing an entity-type thing, uh, so Michael Fortin asked the questions about how uh, yep. Google might find something to be reliable. Well, Brilliant. if somebody links to it a lot, it's more likely to be reliable. Something like New York Times, if, if people tend to cite things, and it's part of the uh, framework for Google, Google said we're going to base our search engine on, on scientific papers, and we're going to look at when people uh, link to a page using a footnote, they're referencing it as a source for what they're writing about. They're citing it. So these types of scientific citations are like, like uh, page rank in that yeah. we're linking to other sources to provide proof of the evidence behind our arguments. And, and pure inbound links is very much popularity, and there's a problem there in that popularity doesn't mean reliability, especially with kind of rag mags, as we call them in the UK. If, but though, if, if we look at publications, we look yeah. at something like the New York Times, which is still a mainstream publication, hmm. a very popular one that a lot of people read. We have in the United States tabloid magazines and yep. newspaper counters like World Weekly News, which are often covered with uh, uh, tabloid rumors and sensationalism, things that are often the subject of uh, litigation and lawsuits and, and people claiming, no, that's not true. Uh, uh, Elvis does not live on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> but he did die on the toilet. Oh, I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Yeah. So how does Google kind of sort between the two? I mean, I use the term ragmag. You've got the right term, which is tabloid. So all, all power to your elbow for getting the right vocabulary. So, so if you're writing about uh, 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 astrophysics, the planets, you, you probably want some scientific journal that's specifically about planets, about astrophysics mm. as a source. But if, if Google decides that uh, uh, New York Times is a better source because it's a more popular one, they might use that one instead. Or if they decide that Scientific American is a good source hmm. because a lot of people have heard of it, they might use that one instead of uh, the, such an, the Milwaukee Journal of uh, Astrophysics and, and Black Holes. Uh, 
Which is a beautiful example of kind of relevancy, both local re relevancy, topic relevancy, and authority. And there we're tiptoeing into expertise, authority, and trust. So, so Google might choose the more popular version, the World Weekly News version of something, because it's well known by lots of people. Uh, when DeepMind was doing scientific, uh, uh, it, was, it was doing uh, artificial intelligence. It was extracting entities from sources. It chose the Daily Mail and CNN, which aren't necessarily known for their journalistic. Well, the Daily Mail isn't known for its journalistic no. integrity. But, <laughs> but they chose those two sources because they were very easy to extract information from. Right. And DeepMind was interested in having sources where it could extract information easily. Oh, sorry, that's really interesting because in, in my CaliCube data set, I actually pulled up the news sites and which news sites appear in news on brand surfs, and the Daily Mail popped up, and I thought that can't be right. But that seems to now make sense. It's it's like Wikipedia. Wikipedia always has the subject of an article as the title to that article. It always has its subject in the oh. URL of the article. It's always got... And the Daily Mail does the same thing. The Daily Mail plays this really simplistic game of just naming a thing as it is, and it's kind of straight down the line. So simple. it's really easy to use a wrapper, a data wrapper, to extract <laughs> information from the Daily Mail. Usually. Do you think they planned that? Yeah, exactly. Oh, no, no, the Daily Mail, not Google. Yeah. Oh, the Daily Mail planned it. Oh, they're very smart. They're way ahead of all of us. Were you their advisor? <laughs> right, and, and Wikipedia planned it too. Brilliant. Oh wow. Oh, all these clever people that I hadn't noticed. Right. Can we can we back come back to, to, to naps and local search? I mean, you mentioned to me if we look at building our presence in the knowledge graph today, it's like looking back 15 years to local search when Google didn't truly understand the entities. Can you expand on that? So so one phrase that people often use to describe something like that is proof of concept. Hmm. So local Maps was a proof of concept for building the search engine based on entities and consistency of information across multiple pages. Right. That's a pretty massive proof of concept they came up with there, right? But, and, and that idea, I mean, you, you were talking about the fact that because people would enter the information about their companies or Google would get the information from telephone directories, they could more or less understand where the, the company was, but then they needed that reassurance from other sources to build that up. Then they needed to build the information around it, the attributes and other entities related to it. So Google was looking at three different types of sources. One of them was uh, uh, directories, local directories. Right. Another was enterprise websites. The third one was data aggregators. aggregators. So if, if the information was consistent across those three different types of sites, it was more likely to be consistent in some type of directory that they could build where people could look up information about businesses. And, and uh, if you rank businesses based upon distance, how close they are, how far away they are, uh, relevance, you know, what type of categories they choose, what the names of businesses mm. are, and, and local prominence, which is based upon mentions. A link may be called a mention. A mention isn't a link, which is tough to say, but they're looking for mentions that are consistent. Right. So 
That's why they're looking for that nap consistency. And they want consistency amongst these different types of sites because if you have more than one type of site saying the same place is at the same location, it's more likely at that location than not. Right. Can we come up with a better word than naps for the knowledge graph so that we don't have to keep saying naps? Because when I explain it to people, they go, what do we care about the name, address, phone number? Because we're actually talking about founding date, founders, founding place for a company. I use the phrase consistency a lot. Okay, I'll use that. Jolly good. Thank you very much. (laughs) But that's helped me enormously. Now, what I do hear there is you're saying geolocation uh, you know, the, the the nearness of it in terms of geolocation, in terms of relevancy and topicality. And then you're ranking in Google Maps according to that closeness of relationship. And that would be the same thing in an entity-based search engine. So when Google refers to entities, they talk about attributes of right. the entities. They mean facts, but mean attributes. The uh, If you're talking about key value pairs, the, a key is a... a type of concept like distance, a value is the actual value, how many miles away it might be, or something like that. So you're, you're, you're talking about consistency amongst attributes for different uh, business, local business entities. And that's right. what they're looking for in local search. In uh, any type of entity, they're looking for, uh, say you have a reviewer giving reviews for products. Mm-hmm. And you'll find out the same type of things. So you look at all these reviews. Do they all say the same types of things about those products? That's right. uh, something you could buy. It's something you could send by email. Uh, you know, they're, they're looking for consistency in that type of information. Right. Yeah. Okay. So consistency is the word I'm going to go with. And for anybody listening who doesn't really know what a name value pair is, the, the guy who taught me PHP back in 1998 said the name is the box and the and the value is the thing you put in the box, which I've always remembered, and it's got me through 22 years of very bad PHP coding. <laughs> so, so when I started doing local search websites, I, I learned that you need to put your street address on your page in text because right. you can't read the... Uh, information that might be embedded in an image. So if you put a street sign for business on your page and Google's not using optical character recognition to read that street sign, they're, they're not spending that com- computational expense. So they're not bothering to take the sign, use computer to read what it says. So you put it in text, you guarantee it's more likely Google might know where the business is at. Yeah, and then if you put it in the schema markup as a name-value pair with address, bingo, Bob's your uncle. Google is not only understood, but it's confident it's understood. Well, schema didn't show up until 2011, and we were doing local search before. Oh, so you were really slow. It turned up in 2011. You put yours in place only in 2014, so all of a sudden you looked like you were behind the times rather than ahead of the times. (laughs) It took me a while to catch up. (laughs) Lovely. Oh, that's delightful. I'm sorry. Um, I'm writing about uh, semantic SEO, and I'm not including latent semantic indexing uh, keywords. Yeah. Because I don't believe in keyword stuffing, even if no. it is related semantic terms. I, I believe in putting attribute information on a page about uh, entities. Oh, I like that. 
Okay, yeah, no, absolutely brilliant. And, and writing clearly, I mean, you were talking about semantic triples, uh, sorry, uh, subject, verb, object, but you also talk about tuples, which I found terribly interesting because I was thinking, oh, three is quite a lot already, but tuples is even more, isn't it? So back in 2005, uh, working for a, a website, it was called Baltimore.org, mm. and it was the website of the Visitors Convention and the Travel Association for the city of Baltimore. And it was intended to get people to visit Baltimore to choose it as a convention center. Right. And and they were trying to optimize for different, they were traditional SEO campaign. Here's the keywords optimized for. Hmm. Baltimore bars, Baltimore museums, Baltimore, uh, they're all Baltimore related because hmm. people, they wanted people to come to Baltimore. They wanted people to find out about Baltimore. So they wanted uh a page about black history in Baltimore because the city has a long history of uh, uh, having black residents who start colleges, who, who uh, are involved in, in churches, and it's really well known for that. So they, they wanted to rank for black history. And we, we optimize a couple pages we optimized a page for baltimore black history it absolutely made no movement at all on seo it ranked about 114th and didn't get better after like three months so so i i skyped my copywriter i'm working with and and because she was working remotely at a little farmhouse in the maryland uh countryside at a farm, right? Uh, I, I sent her a message saying, okay, use a Wikipedia, use something else, learn about the city of Baltimore and the famous places in Baltimore that people could go to visit and actually see and create like a, a foot map of travel from one place to another to another in the city. And mention all these famous people. There are people like Billy Holiday and Frederick Douglass who worked in Baltimore, who left behind things that people can go see. Hmm. And and she said, okay, I can do that. Uh, and she created like a, a 3,300-word long document that you could take, uh, go to small oh, wow, yeah. and travel around the city and see, like there's a nine-foot-tall statue of Billy Holiday in Baltimore. So that inspires another question, which is kind of like, sorry, do, do you think that Google has an easier time understanding physical entities than it does conceptual entities, which would be the difference between Billy Holiday and uh, black history? So black history is, if you look at the concept, it's a collection of information about historic figures in the city. Right. So if we talk about historic figures and figures in a city, we're covering the conceptual history of that information. So we're actually killing two birds with one stone. Mm. And it immediately becomes much more complicated because you have so many different entities involved, whereas the statue of Billie Holiday is one thing in one place that so presumably doesn't move very often. So we were thinking, okay, so we're, we, we're going to rank this page for all these long tail terms mm. that people might search for if they're interested in Baltimore's black history, they're mm. going to search for Frederick Douglass. They're going to search for Billy Holiday. Mm. They're going to want to find out about the Billy Holiday statue. It's nine foot tall 
made out of bronze in the city of Baltimore and mm. see it. So, so you build up the, the uh, sorry, this is an idea, and it, it, you build up the understanding of the entity topic by building up the understanding of the physical or, or the, the simpler entities that make up that topic. Would that be a fair assumption? Yeah. Oh, it, made sense, it made sense to do. Uh, we wanted people to know about the history of Baltimore. So we're saying, okay, these are the places in Baltimore that they'd be interested in seeing. <laughs> That's the best lamp in the world. We just had Bibby Raven, uh, Bibby the link builder, in fact, saying that she loves Bill's lamp behind his. It must be your right shoulder if I turn myself around and pretend to be you. There's a design studio in, in town uh, in uh, a little beach town near me that has industrial design type stuff. Right. I've gone in there, and this was like 200 bucks behind somebody's booth. And I asked them, can I get that? And they were surprised by the question. But, yeah, they said, sure. Uh, right. And, and Bibi just said she read your, your article and she had to take a lie down. I said earlier on I read your article and I suddenly realized that I had Homer Simpson's kind of uh, symbol crashing going on in my head and realized that I'd completely not paid attention to the last sentence or two, and I had to go back and read it again. I think that's fairly common for most people, not because you're not a good writer, which is absolutely the opposite, but because the, the subjects are so complex and we're trying to get our heads around all these different ideas that you're bringing to, to us that we didn't understand before. Next up, um, knowledge panels. I want to move on to knowledge, knowledge panels because I want to have the time to talk about that. What purpose do they serve in Google's eyes? Like I was saying, your keyword usage is a guessing game. You're trying to guess what the right words are to ask about to get more information about a certain topic. They're not necessarily always the subject of your question, but they're something you think might reveal more. So you're guessing these are the right keywords to ask about Google mm -hmm. to get more information. Once you look at search results, you're able to refine your questions. Mm -hmm. And you can see what pages are there. If you see a knowledge panel, it contains a lot of facts. You can amend your queries based on those facts. And a knowledge panel uh, is about different types of entities. Different entities will have different templates that they use. Say you have a musician. You're going to ask the same questions about every musician. What type of instrument do they play? What types of songs do they play? Uh, what are the most famous songs? What queries are most appropriate for that musician? Or for that entity type. Uh, actors, people are asking about movies, they're asking about TV series, they're asking about plays. And and you can see information about those. Uh, food types, you're going to have people asking whether types of foods do they go with, what types of drinks do they go with. Uh, there are certain templates that those follow. When people look at those uh, knowledge graphs, they're able to refine their queries. They're able to come up with other things to ask. They're learning about the subject. They're saying those keywords I used, they were a good guess. There's a lot of information here. Right. And and I, can, I can ask more specific questions that give me my answer. Yeah, and Google is kind of packaging up for us the things that we might want to know about this entity, around this entity, and it's templating them and filling up those templates or the information from those templates as and when it understands it. And it's looking at the uh, people also ask questions and it's saying, are these teachable moments? Are they giving people good examples mm. of questions they could ask? 
All right, you've just ruined my weekend. I'm going to go start digging into my database, trying to pull all this stuff out and figure out the templates and what are these educational moments that you talk about. Um, okay, so when and how are knowledge panels triggered? Why do they appear? I mean, why do we get them sometimes and not other times? Google can recognize that there's a, an entity in your query. And oh, okay. Some, but, some, some queries have... Uh, some percentage of queries have entities in them. Hmm. There was one Microsoft study that was like an anecdotal type thing. It really wasn't too in-depth, but it said like 70% of queries have entities in them. Right. I'm going to quote that forever and ever and ever and <laughs> ever. Right. And, and if, you, if you look at the types of things people are asking, they're not necessarily the uh, most intellectually stimulating questions, but people are asking questions like, uh, what instruments do the boys in the Backstreet Boys play? Oh, none. They're, they're, none of them are musicians and they can't sing. Somebody else did the singing for them. How does that sound? It sounds like Millie Vanilli, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I wrote for the Daily Mail and some several other tabloid papers that were spreading scurrilous rumors about the Backstreet Boys. Sorry, okay. do carry on. Those are the types of questions people ask in search engines. Right, yeah, okay. And... I mean, what I've tended to notice, I mean, I focus on companies and people, but the geolocation changes enormously what Dawn Anderson talks about, the probabilistic nature of am I searching for this specific entity, especially in ambiguous cases. Oh, dear. Have I said something weird? A few pants about places like Fort Worth, and that's F-O-R-T Worth or F-T period Worth. And right. Which is which, but in one state, Fort Worth is spelled FT Worth. In the other state, Google uses Fort F-O-R-T and Worth to spell the C. And and the different spellings mean the same things, but there are different locations most of the time when people refer to them that way. I lived in uh, Newark, Delaware, N-E-W-A-R-K, which is not the same as Newark, New Jersey, which right. is pronounced very different. It's not just the accent. Uh. <laughs> well, yeah, not that I know what the difference in the accent would be. For me, all Americans sound the same, except Texans, who have a very strong accent that I would recognize. Now, next question is, what are trigger terms? I read your article, and I kind of went, right, okay, brilliant. Can you explain it to me in words of, like, one syllable or less that I would understand? You write certain words, Google says, you mean this. So, so I write a location, and then I write the word forecast. Google right. says they're asking for a forecast. They want weather about that place. That's a trigger term to show a knowledge panel that includes weather information, hmm. a little sun or snow or something like that. We're going we're going to use that as a trigger. Okay. Uh, um, and what are label terms? If you do a, a reverse image search in, in Google Images, hmm. you'll get a number of categories that have been related to the images. Uh, they can also, they can often be highly educational. Say, for instance, you start looking up the presidents of the United States. Right. You can see labels related to each of the presidents that are about that president's life. Uh, certain events that happened or certain things are associated with drawings or pictures from that person. So if you uh, search for Donald Trump, one of the labels might be Time Magazine covers because there's right. some covers of Donald Trump in a Time Magazine style. 
And that's one of the labels for Donald Trump images. Uh, so, so Google tells you they're using machine IDs for uh, uh, information in image search. They're also using an ontological semantic relationship between labels and, and the, uh, people identified in the queries. That's absolutely brilliant. I love that explanation. It suddenly makes sense to me, whereas it didn't like five minutes ago. Um, I, in your article as well, I was reading that structured information cards evolve in how they are triggered based on queries and the grammar of the information in the card. I didn't make that phrase up. I just read it from the screen because I copy-pasted <laughs> out of your article. Can you explain that? So I said you can have an entity use a musician, and there's certain query template that's associated with that musician. Hmm. Uh, it includes showing what types of musical instruments they perform, what types of songs they perform, what styles. Are they jazz musicians, blues musicians, so on? And these, these types of labels are, are associated with the entity type, and they may vary over time based upon changes in language. Uh, the well, way they talk about uh, popular music, they talk about uh, bands that, like BTS does uh, social criticism in some of their songs, where they, they don't necessarily target uh, the victims of their social criticism in songs, they target them in social media. So they make fun of uh, Donald Trump in Twitter. Right. And, and so we come back to the idea that words will change meaning over time and therefore what they're going to be putting in the knowledge panel would change over time for what was popular music back in the 50s in the UK, which would be, I'm trying to remember his name, the guy who played the ukulele, um, whose name has completely escaped me. And it will come back to me in the middle of the night at three o'clock. Uh, that was popular back, at, George Formby, got it. Um, it was popular back in the 50s. It's not popular anymore. So popular music would t would have a, no a knowledge panel for the 50s if they had existed. This is starting to sound very weird. If knowledge panels existed in the 50s, it would have had George Formby in it. Today, it's going to have Adele. Brilliant. And and the other the other question as well is, is something that I kind of look at is there are two other problems that I can see with knowledge panels and the knowledge graph. One is as things change over time, so a musician who was playing the guitar and becomes a, uh, a, a singer, um, or a musician who plays multiple instruments. Google has a lot of trouble handling that. So you had Bob Dylan, who famously was known for playing the acoustic guitar, until mm -hmm. one day he shows up at a jazz festival with an electric guitar and starts playing Brilliant. that. And people are, are screaming, heretic and traitor. <laughs> Because he, he's playing uh, blues songs with electric guitar, playing slide songs, right? George Formby on screen. Sorry, Anton's just put up George Formby. And, and you can see that he really wouldn't fit into the pop music scene of today. Thank you. Sorry, carry on, Bill. I interrupted. Yeah, so Bob Dylan was playing electric guitar. He was a heretic. But in fact, he transformed the way people were looking at music. People start watching uh, uh, people performing All Along the Watchtower by Jimi Hendrix because of Bob Dylan's transformational electronic to electronic music from acoustic music. And they accepted right. that a song All Along the Watchtower written by Bob Dylan could become an electronic anthem as performed right. by Jimi Hendrix. 
I have to say, Jimi Hendrix uh, didn't manage to make, for me at least, the Star Spangled Banner an electric guitar song. I never, I, I could never quite get my head around that. But that's kind of musical taste apart. Um, moving on to dominant entities, which I find really interesting. You were talking about that very briefly when we had a chat. The concept of dominant entities they describe in the, in the patent that I didn't 100% fully understand. So if you could explain it again, that would be really kind. So some knowledge panels uh, give you uh, large search results for one type of entity that they might have found in a query. Say I, I search for Danny Sullivan. Danny mm. Sullivan is a journalist who writes about search engine-related uh, uh, articles. But there's a Danny Sullivan who's a NASCAR driver and is much more popular than Danny <laughs> Sullivan, a journalist. So not with that's the Aussies, not. <laughs> Well, they'll, they'll show a knowledge panel about the race car driver, and they'll show right. a NASCAR car and some other stuff, and they'll show a little box underneath it that's about the technologist. That's what Which they is the results about. Right. So so that's that's a disambiguation query box where they're right. saying, okay, this is whom else you might have met when you were looking for Danny Sullivan. So they're, they're giving you a couple of choices. With a dominant uh, entity, they're saying, okay, there are, you're looking for a horse. We, we know that people like riding horses. We know that carpenters like sawing horses. And we know that gymnasts like vaults, which look like horses, but are nothing like horses. <laughs> and and uh, we'll choose the main horse, the equestrian horse, as the... Uh, dominant entity right that you're referring to as a horse okay and and then the other ones are i don't know what what's the opposite of not dominant what's not dominant subordinate thank you very much you're very good at this word yeah. thing aren't okay. you that's absolutely brilliant so we've we've gone actually through kind of everything i really wanted to talk about and we've taken up 45 minutes i think that's a great length for an episode and that was actually quite beautiful i actually prepared for once in my life a list of things i wanted to talk about in order and we more or less stuck to it that was absolutely brilliant bill thank you so much and i'm so glad to see you back on top form again and so glad that you came on the show so soon after recovering well, it's it's been a pleasure i i uh really need the mental stimulation they i i told you i spent a couple months at the hospital yeah and they, they had a occupational therapist they had a physical therapist the occupational therapist kept on testing me to see if i could uh do things that would prepare me for work the physical therapist kept on forcing me to try to walk off balance mm -hmm. they were saying okay walking in these panels are sort of like question your balance it's like walking at the beach right I, I i drove to the beach this weekend and walked on sand so that was my uh home application of that principle i said if i can walk on the beach at, at and it throws me off balance that's probably helpful yeah and brilliant it's not a waste of time like you're saying but and then you came back from the beach well, and immediately wrote a brilliant article so so they Occupational therapists and physical therapists, they also had speech therapists. And speech therapists are actually supposed to talk with you and make sure that you can communicate well with others and send emails and, and use computers and things like that. So they were pulling tests out of booklets 
on how to do things like deductive reasoning. Hmm. And and they gave me a couple of those, and I was uh, doing them too easily. So yeah, I was going to say, I can only imagine you must have nailed them far too quickly for everybody. They, they were saying, we need new books. I said, well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant stuff. But, yeah, they gave you it, and then you gave it back, and they said, what, already? <laughs> well, if you have a stroke, sometimes it affects your ability to think and talk yeah. and move certain limbs and stuff like that. It it really affected my sense of balance more than anything. Right, yeah. But, I mean, I, to be honest with you, talking to you today feels to me just like talking to you six months ago. So I'm terribly happy. And we've got loads of delightful messages wishing Bill well. Uh, keep on the road to recovery and keep writing, Bill. Keep keep teaching us all, all about these patents. So thank you so much, Bill. I'm going to just quickly announce that Casey Gillette, the delightful Casey Gillette, is going to be on next week. I met her very briefly in New York, and we had a delightful, wonderful conversation. She's chirpy, cheerful, intelligent, fun, and it's going to be absolutely delightful. And I think I might actually prepare some questions because it worked so well today. A quick goodbye to end the show. Thank you, Bill, and welcome back. Thank you, Jason. Thanks a lot, man. Mm -hmm.